0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. In this episode, Alex and I discuss the cultural reasons about why the plane of Rabiah will never come back into Magic the Gathering. This is an issue that I feel personally very strongly about, and this is an issue and a subject that can be a little bit sensitive for people especially those who have had their cultural identities marginalized. We want to see Magic the Gathering be a place where cultures can all be valued equally, where people can see themselves in the game. Representation is always one of the most important things about a game being engaging to people of all walks of life, from all cultural backgrounds, and from all different places in the world. It's for this reason that we recorded this episode, even though we know that as two white guys from the upper Midwest of the U.S., we are going to get some things wrong. We are going to perceive things different than a lot of people will, but we hope to use our platform here to start or continue or add to conversations going on about race and culture in Magic the Gathering. and. Hopefully we can help perpetuate this conversation and make sure that we don't make the same mistakes in the future that we have in the past in terms of representation in the game that we love. You'll also notice my passion coming out in the fact that the last five minutes of this episode are me just being on a soapbox. So if you're excited for that, like I am and was. Get ready. Without any further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. This episode we are a little bit shorthanded. We are coming to you with only two of our usual three hands, and uh, I know that that's a little bit tough to fathom having three hands. But uh, you know, we are we're talking you about mythical work. creatures, yeah. So why can't we be mythical too? Um, think think the triple-headed, the triple-striking goblin from. Uh, unstable that's that's usually this podcast but for now we're just a normal two-headed goblin and this week we are going to be talking about rabia and actually i don't know if it's pronounced rabia or rabia but we'll get into why that's a question and an issue because we're talking about why rabia uh, rabia is kind of a problem for magic storyline in the past and why we're never gonna go back there again But before we get into all that, I am going to have my co-host introduce himself and we are going to have our intro question of if you could choose any plane in the multiverse to make your home, what plane would that be?
1: I'm Alex Newman, at AlexanderNewM on Twitter. Um, and my first instinct, and, and the thing is, I don't... Thinking about it, I don't know that I have a fully rational reason to answer, but my first instinct was Theros. So I'm just going to go with Theros. Um, I, I know I really enjoyed the flavor of the set. A, I just really enjoyed Gre- Ancient Greece. I mean, I was... Yeah a philosophy major for a little while and read a lot of ancient Greek uh, from people in from ancient Greece. Um, but just the setting, I think the the world feels very vibrant. There's a lot going on in that world. So I, I, I think that's probably where I would pick for my home.
0: Yeah, it's very beautiful, very, you know, pastoral. And there's kind of this cool faith-based element of, like, you can see what you believe in happening in the world that's kind of cool
1: yeah and, and it's a nice varied place it's it's not one of those like science fiction ice worlds or volcano <laughs> worlds it's it's there's a little bit of everything going on it seems like a good place to just globetrot
0: i love it well and i am joe Redeman. you can find me on twitter at findhorn that's f-y-n-d horn and uh, part of me really wants to be hipster and pick somewhere like Olgrotha, which uh, if you don't know Olgrotha, it is the setting of the Homelands expansion set, uh, possibly the worst magic expansion ever. Um, we can get into Olgrotha later <laughs> some other I, time.
1: I imagine it may come up in this con- very conversation oh, that's later it's the podcast.
0: It's certainly possible. Uh, but Elgrotha is kind of like a It's a horrible dying world And there's a small section of it That is like livable It's like if that's you were to less build dying. Yeah that's slightly <laughs> less dying But even there you still have Like terrible people all over the place It's its just bad So anyway forget Elgrotha I'm over it um, I think That I would actually pick Zendikar Because even though Zendikar Is kind of like the world is you know the terrain's in upheaval and it's still i mean at this point it's still rebuilding itself from the eldrazi attacks um it's a really beautiful world full of plenty of places to explore and adventure and kind of kind of the same way that you were saying, Alex, there's a ton of varied climates uh, there in, in Theros. That's the same thing in Zendikar. You kind of have this realistic seeming world, um, but it does have sort of that unifying theme of adventure and exploration.
1: Sounds
0: good. What doesn't seem good, though, is is a certain <laughs> particular plane that we're going to talk about here. And for the sake of conversation, uh, let's just nail down one pronunciation and let's call it Rabaya. Um, that might be completely wrong because it's based on the real-life culture of Arabia. And so maybe it's Arabia, but we're going with Rabia.
1: If we don't know the right way to pronounce it, I like the idea of just picking one and probably being wrong regardless, but just committing (laughs) to be incorrect and just carrying through.
0: So Rabia, or Rabia the Infinite as it's known, is, like I said, it's this plane that's based on the real world setting and culture of Arabia. You know, Saudi Arabia, the Arabian Desert, all of the sort of Middle Eastern cultures kind of smushed into one.
1: Which very because we're, we're going to be talking about the flavor of this plane and i think some other planes so i don't want to go too deep on some things but this was introduced to De magic as the setting for the arabian Nights expansion um which was the first expansion for the game and in fact was created by richard garfield in a very very short amount of time because for not story reasons the for real-world reasons, Wizards needed a new product to sell. They needed something else to put on shelves because the game, in the first couple of years, was just continuously selling out. And so he made this set. He picked a setting that he knew he could, you know, whip out a bunch of cards. Um, and so it was based on the One Thousand uh, and One Nights collection of stories from the the uh, Arabian sort of Middle Eastern culture.
0: Yeah, and so. This was kind of the I mean, it was the first expansion, but it was also the first top down expansion in that Mm -hmm. way, because it was based on, you know, an an IP. It was based on an intellectual property It was based on the story of the thousand one Arabian Nights. Um, And so every card basically relates to one of those stories in some way or another. That's where you have Mm -hmm. the old man in the sea. You have um, King Suleiman. You have Scheherazade. You have all sorts of nonsense.
1: Yeah, including uh, the names of real places, Library of Alexandria, the Bazaar of Baghdad were both cards in that set. That also is, is a part of, as we're going to kind of get to, why this is a setting that Wizards is never going to go back to. Um, the, the first and one of the most problematic issues with it is that it includes locations from the real world that are very, very heavily based on a culture. As opposed to, you know, we've seen recently with with Kaladesh, where there is definite inspiration from a real world culture. They took, I think, from my perspective, a lot of care. Having I mean, not not belonging to that culture, I don't want to speak for other people, but it seemed like they took a lot of care to take some inspiration from that culture, but make it its own thing. Say so this is Kaladesh. It has some uh, Indian cult, uh, inspiration, but it is Kaladesh rabia rabia does not really have that distinction
0: and so that's kind of what we're going to get into in the second half of our podcast more talking about that real world connection um let's sort of run down what we know about rabia since it is early on since it showed up early on in magic history we don't have a ton of backstory for it like you said alex richard Uh garfield churned out this setting. Really, really quickly, and so it's not yep. like there was a lot of Vorthos consideration to this. What? You know, a lot of it was sort of back explained to be this plane. If I remember right, yep. uh, this was theoretically supposed to be sort of set on Dominaria in a different uh, continent or something, and then they Maybe. sort of said it didn't really work to do that. So actually, this is Rabia. It's a different plane.
1: That. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know some of those story pieces from back then. I do know one of the things that uh, didn't help the lack of orthos in this is because they made it so quickly, the flavor text is entirely from real world sources. Right. Um, A lot from the 1,001 Nights, from...
0: There was a fair amount from the Bible as well, right?
1: Yeah. So there's quotes from the Quran too, I believe.
0: So Rabiah is a solely desert plain. So kind of the opposite of what we were talking about with the varied climates of Theros and Zendikar, Rabia is a completely desert plain. The weird, even more, I guess, the the weird quality, the unique quality of Rabia than just it being a desert world with dunes and oases and all this stuff is the fact that long ago in its history, there was something called the Thousandfold. fold reflection refraction the thousandfold refraction where Rabaya's magic was sort of shattered or or reflected or splintered we're not exactly sure of any of this of how it happened of who did it of why they did it any of that again this is all very vague long time ago this was god over 20 years ago now uh mm-hmm. in magic history um but somebody did something to rabia that made it multiply 1,000 times. And so literally there were 1,001 different variations of rabia. And so again, you tie flavorfully sort of into that story of a 1,001 Arabian Nights. Um, but each of the rabias was slightly different than the other. And it was sort of that idea that had been... Uh, that has been talked about for a number of years now in our world that, um, you know, there are infinite universes out there with infinite possibilities and infinite different variations of us, you know, each little choice point is a digression and whatever. And so that's kind of how Rabia was shaped is, you know, there might be a Joe and Alex somewhere in Rabia one podcasting, uh, on a show called Goblin Lore. And then there might be a Joe and Alex somewhere on Rabiah 397 podcasting on a show called Jin Lore. And, you know, like just. Oh, I thought you, you know. were
1: going to iterate and say Goblin Boar.
0: Oh, there you go. That's 472.
1: Yep. Yep. <laughs> or is that somewhere in between because it's still Goblins? See, it's. It, oh, alternate, right. you know, dimensions get so, really confusing.
0: Spectrums are tough, too. but yeah so you have this world where over centuries the planes are evolving independently of each other um but they all have very similar cultures and from out of this comes one of the first planeswalkers we ever find out about and the most powerful pre-revisionist planeswalker Taysir is one of the cooler ideas, actually, I think, of pre-revisionist Planeswalkers. It would never happen in Magic story today, but it's pretty darn cool. Essentially, Taysir was born on five different worlds of Rabiah. Five different Taysirs were born on five different Rabiah worlds. And so during that uh, refraction he was copied those five times once for each color so each of these copies manifested a gift for you know using this particular color of magic there was a green taste a red a white a blue a black and th- he was sort of like you know kind of harry potter style prophesied to be like the one made of five the greatest sorcerer that the world had ever known uh, that the world would ever know I guess at that time and um so each of those refractions had led a different life. red tasier was a nomad green taser was a herder blue taser remained a baby, which is super weird um white taser became a whirling dervish a um a, a warrior, and then black taser uh became. Uh, sort of an assassin, and Black Taysir started hunting down the other Taysirs, like found a way to go world to world. Um and when he tried to kill the other Taysirs, he absorbed them into him and sort of became this amalgamation of all of them. And once the last Taysir was absorbed into the, the the hole, he his spark ignited. The five pieces of his spark were reunited as Planeswalker Spark and he, you know, Became a planeswalker and so not only was he a planeswalker he was a pre-revision planeswalker a pre-mending planeswalker and he was one of the few planeswalkers who has ever mastered all five colors of magic and so that's pretty darn dope and I mean this is to me this is one of the cooler origin stories of a planeswalker and kind of is facilitated by the weirdness of Rabaya's world,
1: yeah, which is interesting. Like it's it's a story you can't really tell in a normal plane. It's it's the whole the the refraction gives some interesting storytelling things, but um, the plane itself has It's just a myriad of of things that make it difficult to uh, to do to bring back. But I think that's a really interesting story,
0: and it's so. It, yeah you're right it, it is like it's difficult to do it's so confusing to follow that story even as i'm telling it and i know this lore i know yeah. i know this lore i've got the gamepedia page sitting in front of me to help me refresh you know it's it is tough to follow and and that's one thing we'll get into here too um i'm just gonna wrap up i guess the bit of lore about rabia here which is uh once Stacier became a planeswalker the sorceress who had tried to, who had like encouraged him to hunt down his other selves um in order so that she could control his power and you know control a uh, planeswalker um she was Furious that she couldn't harness his powers, and so once Tayser walked away from Rabiah, she created a barrier around the Rabiahs, preventing him from ever returning. So what a lovely little uh, in-lore way for <laughs> wizards to ensure that we can never planeswalk back to Rabaya.
1: Yep, that's 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 a nice clean way to just be like, and that was that.
0: Well, and that sort of gets us to... Uh, a part of this that especially I know you wanted to talk about Alex, which is Mark <laughs> Rosewater's Rabia scale.
1: Yes, um, I personally think these things are really interesting. He has a couple scales, um, the Storm scales for mechanics, but this one that we're going to talk about today is the the Rabia scale. Um, basically, what what Mark Rosewater does is is he builds a scale one to ten, um, and it's the likelihood of a set coming back in a standard legal set of a, th- of a thing. So one being very likely you, you know, will definitely for, in this case, the scales, you know, one is we will definitely see again, most likely very soon. 10 is rabia. I mean, never, <laughs> you know, um, the, the actual description is I would never say never, but this would require a major miracle. So, The point of, you know, and and he gave kind of a list and he numbered things out and people will talk to him about different things Is you know, does this change this? Like Dominaria recently moved from a four to a one because of the popularity of the set, uh, the Dominaria set this summer. Um, And so it's just, I think it's a really interesting way for... Mark Rosewater, who's the head designer, and, and especially in this case too, he's he's not tied to creative, so he doesn't have quite as much weight in this. But it's a, it's a great way for him to kind of communicate with the community and to share you know information in a very um, quantifiable way. Just saying, you know, giving, because he can't say, well, I know we're going back to this set until they're ready to announce it. But he can say, well, that's about a four on the scale. If <laughs> someone's asking about a world that they really like, you know, talking about Vryn, that's a four on the scale. So that gives people, that gives them, the, that gives Mark the ability to kind of answer questions and talk to the community about this stuff. And it gives the community the ability to kind of quantify where Wizards is at, or at least where Mark thinks Wizards is at regarding some of these different worlds
0: right and so that's why rabia is at the top of this scale rabia is the only 10 there are a bunch of nines there's planes that have been destroyed there are planes that have been you know encased and locked away there are planes that were just kind of meh
1: yeah you know the uh Elgratha, or, you know, my favorite, like you were saying, the planes that were destroyed or encased. Planes that technically exist but would be difficult to travel to. Sarah's Realm, Wrath, Phyrexia, Old School Phyrexia.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah all those sit at 9, but is the only one at 10, and that is kind of what we want to talk about today. <laughs> Culture in games and how you represent cultures in games. And... For the sake of this discussion, we're going to kind of be defining culture as um, sort of heritage or, you know, the culture that you live in, um, you know, sort of your cultural setting. Um, you know, we talked a little bit off air, Alex, about how there are things like gamer culture or magic culture or... um You know, nerd culture in general or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think some of those some of those things are important. And those are those are important communities with important sort of defining factors in and of themselves. But it's it's a little less, I think, intrinsically tied into people's identities and, and Frank, quite frankly, into people's bodies, you know.
1: Yeah. And and of course, we're talking, you know, relating to to magics and magic sets being based on cultures. And those are going to be world cultures based on locations and demographics and things, as opposed to like the office culture at your workplace, which is totally a thing. Like any time you get two people together who spend any amount of time, there's culture there. But that isn't super applicable to what we're talking <laughs> about so at some point we kind of have to draw a line and say okay we're not going to talk about that then
0: right yeah so for the sake of this discussion we're talking yeah culture cultural demographic type things and so that's kind of the big problem with rabia is not even just that it's it's tough to do from a legal standpoint or design standpoint or creative standpoint it's tough to do this from a representation standpoint. And I think that's good that wizards has actually started to recognize that because Rabia presented a world of, of middle Easterners that really was just a sort of a hodgepodge mess of, of, you know, geographic non selection. And, and there's, you know, because, you, you know, this is something I alluded to earlier on in the episode. You don't have just Arabia in the Middle East. It's not just all Arabia. There's Saudi Arabia. Yeah. There is Oman. There is Yemen. There is Jordan. There's Lebanon, Syria. Uh, you United even have. Arab Emirates. Right. You, Qatar. You have even uh, Middle Eastern cultures that are not islamic or arabic you have israel you have turkey you know those are completely different cultures
1: And then you have things like Egypt that has it's that has a lot of its own history and culture, but because of where it is, it's right in between a lot of the like Middle Eastern, what we would consider Middle Eastern culture, and a lot of the Greeks, like Egypt, kind and African. of African and and African. yeah, it, it really was in the middle of all this and influenced by all of it
0: right absolutely and and so i mean again and that spreads out because all obviously all these places are connected to one another but mm-hmm. you know you even get further out into iran which has a lot of central asian influence
1: you mm-hmm. have uh you know well, tons persia. of them. that's right. that's you know where persia was and sort of broke up and like you know you go a little bit further you have you know ancient babylon into you know modern day a rock?
0: I think you're right. I think. Yeah.
1: So, like, there's all manner of stuff in there of what we would just, you know, paint with the, the broad brush of Middle Eastern. It's like, there's a lot there. There's right. a lot there now and a lot going back down all sorts of different lines.
0: Right. And so, that's sort of the issue that you run into when you're creating a game or, you know, some sort of fictional world that is based on a real world culture or even mm-hmm. even more so, I guess, sort of a, an amalgamation or a stereotype of these cultures is you get this muddy picture that is sort of just a, like, it kind of almost becomes a caricature.
1: Yeah. And, and I think, unfortunately, helping that character, making it more of a caricature, caricature the set includes Aladdin, like literally there's right. a card called Aladdin in Arabian Nights and you know it calls out named characters it calls out named places and that just doesn't really fit with how magic design has been going forward they've been trying to to have their own places both because it's better to have the creative control of it and because then they don't have to worry as much about you know doing something in sense of doing something just wrong with the culture
0: right and so a couple of a couple of things I guess that really um, I, I guess let's start with some of the the problems with rabbiah the 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 problems the the main facets of problems are things that are sort of spiritual I mean you have passages from the Quran which is the Islamic holy book on the uh-huh these game pieces, basically, you know, and that's, that can be a little bit disrespectful. Um, you know, I don't know if there are any Muslim magic players who, you know, particularly don't feel like it is, but I think there should be some acknowledgement of the fact that it can be, it can be a little bit issue issue some, if you don't think about the way that that's represented and and how you're Uh doing that. Um, yeah. You know, there are some things, uh oh, just... parts of Rabiah too where it's it's entirely a desert. Well, the entire Middle East is not a desert. Yeah. There's there are that... beautiful uh, you know, coasts. There are the rolling hills of Israel. I mean, there's beautiful parts of that world. Mm-hmm. But it's all, all we see is like, you know, a camel on the sand dunes. And it's like, Well, okay, sure, got it. We're in we're in the Middle East, cool. <laughs>
1: Yeah, put put some sand on there, and then uh, we know it's the Middle East. God.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. and and also too, I, uh, another part of this that I didn't mention in the lore part, but uh, Rabiah was originally back when this was a, a thing that happened pre mending. Rabiah is uh, ha- generates random planar links to other planes. And so you know, it might br- uh, one of the f- shards of Rabia essentially might brush up against another plane's meta space, uh, and those those planar links, those portals, manifest in Rabia not as like a portal, not a shimmering like portal that appears somewhere. It's a giant desert twister, like a, a sandstorm, mm. and it's just like I I don't know, something about that just strikes me as weird.
1: Yeah, and I, I think some of that just ties to Wizards kind of realizing after they were you know, a couple of years into the game, even not even that like their very next set was Antiquities and then Legends and like they started to build their own mythology and build their own worlds immediately after that. I think they, they kind of realized that that's not the direction that they want to go in almost immediately and, and so the, the I think their thing was, well let's just not make a big deal about it. Let's just leave that alone and we're not going to do that anymore. And, I mean, outside of kind of being an anomaly in one or two cards that make a big splash in the older formats, the Arabian Nights doesn't really show up in Modern Magic.
0: Well, and and another part of that too is, uh, I don't remember if the card is exactly named this, but the Whirling Dervishes are also mentioned, the Dervishes, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's the okay. Derv... Yeah, and the dervishes are um you know initiates uh, of the Sufi path of religion um and, and you know it, it, or the Sufi order of Islam. Uh it's it's sort of like, you know, if if anyone is Christian, uh, this is just my easiest reference point. It's it's like this would be like Lutherans. For instance, it's one sect of the greater religion, um, but the whirling, that dancing, the spinning dance is a form of, you know, celebration and praise and prayer, and so it, it's a little bit weird that it then j- becomes this soldier card, essentially, you know, and and so again, you have this weird <laughs> sort of mushing of a real world thing into what the game needs, rather than taking ideas from a real world culture yeah. and sort of then interpreting them into the game you know it's it's more of a direct rip and then it, it, i guess it you're pulling something out of it and then putting uh putting a new idea over it rather than taking the idea and sort of shaping it into something completely new you know yeah and, and I guess that's maybe a good point for us to talk about we've seen magic do this really well in recent years and so we don't want to we don't want to completely bash wizards and magic for how they've handled culture because I I think and again we're both two upper midwestern white guys talking about this so we don't know exactly and maybe this is going to be something that we're going to learn more about and, and you know I, I'm open to that but yeah. I think they have at the very least, improved in, in the twenty years since *Arabian Nights* came out. Yeah, uh, in how they handle real world cultures, like we we just had *Kaladesh* a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, and they've they've done a few, and and I think *Kaladesh* is is actually not the the most recent. Uh, *Amidcat* came out after, but you're right. Um, both, yeah, both of those based on the not even based on, and that I think that might be the the difference here they weren't based on real world cultures they were inspired um, they took elements from those cultures and built their own world but used elements and inspiration from those cultures to kind of suffuse that world and to build more life into it um, i think and i th- think both in both places you could really see that especially kaladesh i think had more of that um Amenkhet definitely had some egyptian but i'd inspiration there was definitely inspiration there but that was also a lot of bolus inspiration in that world too so there were some other things going on there as well
0: yeah they definitely took the yeah the aesthetics from egypt but it it wasn't an mm-hmm. egypt story i mean like the closest thing they had to it like a story egyptian wise was actually that it it resembled the um uh, the biblical 10 plagues sort of narrative.
1: Yes. Which, um, and, and I think fine, in the, but... the actual first cat set, there was, there was little bits like the, uh, the serpapod is oh, a sure. thing from, from Egypt. I just, yep, I just snakes. know that because of, um, yeah, the, the serpapod from Amonkhet is, is an element from uh, Egyptian stories and things. And, and I only know of that thanks to uh, uh, Sonia Greer, who's uh, at Jedet R-U-D-J-E-D-E-T, on Twitter, um, who's a big part of the the magic community and also an Egyptologist. Um, yeah, amenket was real interesting if you uh, followed her because she talked about a lot of just stories from Egypt in general and different little elements that wizards put into the set that kind of tied to things. And so there was definitely an Egypt – there was definitely pieces of that there, but I, I think overall – they were going more for the bolus flavor um, on on the world of almond cat.
0: Yeah, that was definitely she's a, a great follow in general. But she was getting to hit home run after home run while almond cat was coming out. Oh, that was great. And-
1: and right when that set was announced she was she was very excited rightfully so like that's those are like her two passions coming together and that was it was great
0: to <laughs> to to watch yeah, yeah. no Kat was definitely a great example of how you can take some elements and aesthetics of a world you know drop in some of those cool little references so that people like Sonya can see them and go like oh this is really cool attention to detail because xyz mm-hmm.
1: without then- it
0: being about that culture, without it being based on that culture,
1: yeah, and and it it also allows them, you know, someone like Sonia to share that with right. the community. Um,
0: and then they get to, we get to learn, yeah, we get to learn more about that culture's history, and and maybe Amenet's not a great example because ancient Egypt is is obviously a, a dead culture at this point. It, we've moved well beyond sphinxes and pharaohs and such, but uh, another great example, I think. At this point, is Kaladesh, where you mm-hmm. do have again some of those references. You have, um, you know, lots of very Indian sounding names. Um, I-, I can think of Pima, um, Rishkar, uh, Rashmi, um. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sahili Rai I mean the these are all very sort of like Indian sounding names on top of the fact that there is caste system which I'm not sure that a lot of people really caught going into uh, Kaladesh I, I didn't see a lot of talk about it but that's kind of a reference to India's colonial history and, and the imperialism that was foisted onto it, but then we see this revolution story where these this caste gets thrown off caste c a s t e you know these these rigid structures of categorizing people into social hierarchy ranks we see that get thrown off and and this revolution this equality happens by the end of this and so I thought that was a, actually a, a really cool possibly accidental, but I'm gonna I'm gonna hope that it was intentional reference to how India has made social progress.
1: And and I think a big part of what made that a, a better use of a real world culture too is like I said they, they made it their own world. Right. So there was definitely influence. There there was definitely references, you know, some maybe deeper than others, but there was definitely elements there. But then there was this whole clockwork invention thing. There was this whole Aether element. So there was a lot of world building around it to make it its own unique place that just had these elements to make it feel more real I think and and I think that's when it's at its best right um, and you have the little spice very...
0: in there but it's not yes. the meat of it
1: and it and it it, it adds uh, verisimilitude to these things when you can add this little bit of the real world it makes it feel more real
0: but we can only talk about this really in our own opinion at least from the perspective of To middle middle-class midwestern white guys and that's you know that is a very limited and and often privileged worldview and so some you know sometimes often honestly we should be listening to somebody who goes through this experience who goes through the process of seeing their own culture represented and reflected in the game and so i wanted to also bring um uh, Shivam Bhatt's article into this. Uh, so Shivam Bhatt is a great magic creator, a magic content creator, awesome dude. Um, you can find him on Twitter at Electrotal, E-L-E-K-T-R-O-T-A-L, or GearPoorGears. But Shivam wrote a piece on Tumblr back when Kaladesh was released. And uh, I I just want to read like a brief section of this and we'll we'll link to his article in the show notes there were people with indian names coloration hairstyles the buildings were all weird mughal architecture that has been splattered with a million colors as if the artist had seen one picture of the taj mahal and the movie aladdin and then decided to spray paint them together it was an amazing anime but it was not indian or even india all those buildings and clothing styles were Persian, not Indian. And over and over, I was told we didn't want to offend anyone. We didn't want to step on real beliefs or real cultural influences or do anything to make anyone mad. So, no four-armed Vidalkan or elephant-headed Laksudan or gods, fine. But then they kept going. No snakes, no monkeys, no rakshasas, no Indian birds, no cultural markers of any kind at all. Literally, just the skin. No, it is not what I've wanted. It is not what I've waited my whole life for. This isn't me or my people or anything to do with me. So that's a really powerful and different way of viewing Kaladesh than we had.
1: Yeah. And, and I'm glad that you brought his perspective into it too, because we don't have you, as you said, you, you and I don't have a lot of perspective on that culturally. So, having his uh, the the best way if you don't have a perspective is to go listen to other people who have a perspective for, who have that perspective that's the best way to learn is to just shut up and listen sometimes like a lot of times really <laughs> yeah
0: and, and it's it's that lived experience that we we don't have the the lived experience of not seeing ourselves in media You know, there have been plenty of white male protagonists in media all over. Just talking about Magic, the beginning of Magic, the first real, you know, central story hero that we had was Gerard Capetian, white dude. But there wasn't a ton of representation other than that. I mean...
1: The Weatherlight, the original Weatherlight crew itself, there was a good kind of smattering of of people humanoids both fictional and and real sort of representation but to your as your point that the main sort of character of the story the central protagonist of the story wait dude
0: yeah and i came away from reading the weatherlight saga at first going okay that's great Great story. Awesome. I come back to it, you know, a little bit later. I look at the cards, all that sort of stuff. And I realize that Sissé was the captain of the ship. I didn't get that in my first reading because Gerard uh-huh. is the guy. Gerard's the dude in charge, it seems like. And so yeah. that, you know, that is kind of how magic positions itself. And, and so you have this... You know, sort of bringing it back to Kaladesh here and Shivam's uh, perception of it and perspective of it, which is totally valid and totally fair. He's He has all these experiences. He knows this culture in and out. And he goes, that's not even, that's not even my culture. So where we see, okay, this is a step in the right direction. We see this is something. And we see that sort of treating a, a subject matter and a cultural... Inspiration gently, Shivam sees that as disrespecting that, and that's completely fair and valid, you know.
1: Yeah, and it, and I, I think this point is, it's, it's like they're trying, they're trying so hard to be respectful that they're not actually engaging. Right. Do you think that that seems a decent read of of what he was saying in that quote?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think it's fear of offending somebody by being too representative of it. So far that you dilute it down into something that it's not. Yeah. And and I think that's, you know, that's an important thing that we do need to realize, too, is that being truthful to source material and being truthful to cultures that inspire is, I don't know, is maybe more important than than even, you know, just the step in the direction. It, it, we've, we've talked about this when I was in teaching school, sort of how do you teach multiculturalism authentically and there's, there's kind of different like stages of a multicultural classroom. Uh, One of them is sort of the, like you talk about it or like you do, you know, just like the minimal bare surface level type stuff. Like we all sort of like knew vaguely about Cinco de Mayo as kids. And like, maybe, you know, you learned it like, maybe you learned it was a Mexican holiday or, you know, maybe the next level is like, Oh, and then you guys, you know, wore little sombreros and ate like rice for lunch that day, you know, and like did a little thing about it. But like that, the next level is actually engaging with the real meat of what it's about and thinking through, you know, and like actually learning like, okay, no, this is, this is a completely different thing than just like a celebration. Like this is where it came from and this is who is involved and this is why it's so critically important to this culture. And I, and I mm-hmm. think that's what you see here and you do see too that, like that cross cultural mushing that we talked about with why Rabia was a bit messy too, because it wasn't really just Saudi Arabian or, you know, um, one specific culture It was just kind of this mus- messy mush. You get that too in Kaladesh.
1: Yeah. And in, in a lot of ways, um, Arabian Nights was kind of a high level of what people in the West would recognize as things from the Middle East. And that's smashing a lot of different people together and not really representing any of them.
0: Right. And, and we do see that a little bit with when we have top down or, or, you know, for lack of a better term in this discussion, but skinned you know, sort of sets where there is some sort of culture laid over it. Um, You know, Mark Rosewater has said specifically, like we want, to do the touchstone things that people will recognize like Egypt set gotta be pyramids, you know, like, sure. I get that. Yeah. But you also want to be true to the culture, especially when it's a living, breathing, vibrant culture, like Egypt, ancient Egypt is dead at a certain point. Like we do know that like, okay. Yeah. The Egyptians today still exist, but they're a very different culture than the Egypt of old Whereas yeah. there are still, uh, there's still a living, breathing, vibrant, thriving Indian culture today.
1: And all sorts of, of it's, a, it's a big place with a lot of people. There's a lot of different cultural touchstones to the whole thing that don't necessarily, aren't necessarily applicable to all of them. Like any given right. place in the U.S. There are cultural touchstones here that just don't that aren't universal to the country.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. Like you said, there's huge different regions.
1: A, it's just a further complication of, well, then what is this, you know, Indian or what is this American or what is this thing that we're trying to represent?
0: Right. Absolutely. And so I think that's, it's important to recognize that there are multiple facets to this. And there's no, there's, there's no easy answer to figuring out how to do, a cultural take responsibly mm-hmm. there's no easy answer but yeah. one of the surest ways to to get closer to it is to bring in people who have those lived experiences who have that exposure to that culture and and have them guide you and lead you mm-hmm. and i and i think too it helps it, it, for something being appropriately representative, something like Amonkhet or Theros, you know, planes like that are reasonable and non-problematic because we're we're not only removed in space, we're removed in time. We're removed, uh-huh. you know, a thousand years from those places. And yeah. so that is super helpful for it being, it's a little more of an artifact as opposed to Rabiah is a living, is based on, and and I say based on intentionally there. Rabbiah is based on some of the lore of a living breathing culture currently today. And it uses references from living breathing religions. And yeah, so I mean, that and, is hugely uh, dangerous.
1: Yeah. And and just difficult to walk and kind of mm-hmm. pointless to do so. Right, right. What's the upside? Element of it. That's 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 definitely an element of its of its high ranking, is it's not just that it's difficult but that it's there's not a lot of payoff for it. There isn't anything special at this world that's worth trying to navigate these difficult uh, situations.
0: And now that's not to say that wizards maybe shouldn't look at doing a world, you know, with a similar sort of <laughs> idea in the future or based on some cultural elements of. You know, uh, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, say they go the Kamigawa route and they uh-huh. base it based on the religion, say, OK, we're going to do something vaguely Islamic or maybe they base uh-huh. it on a specific region. And they say or, we or, want it to. Right. We want it to be Babylonian. Persian, Babylonian, Sumerian. Was, uh, maybe we was... want it to be, you know. Saudi Arabian in in nature, you know, or specifically Syrian. We don't, you know, that's not to say they shouldn't do something like that. They magic. should, because I thought it was the coolest thing when I saw Ixalan being the first, you know, western hemisphere culture essentially set, uh, you know, in, in magic history. Like, mm-hmm. that's the first time that's happened, and I was so pumped about that, and it's got me thinking now about you know, and although there are representation issues in this, um, not not in his work. I'll get to my point here in a second. Not in, not in his work, but in um, in the idea of again representing a culture in a store in the story in the game. But it got me thinking about Ryan Panko's uh, fantasy frontier series of drawings. The one of the magic artists who's done like sketches and paintings of what a fantasy setting in the american west would look like sort of in that frontier you know 1850s range and you know you'd have maybe like instead of cat folk and that sort of thing you'd have like bison folk and that sort of stuff and i think that's so cool like as as somebody who lives in this country near those things you know near bison near the the great plains i think that would be so great to see in in a magic setting But you have to be careful and deft about dealing with something like saying, you know, any any of these cultures specifically, you know, reference Native Americans or, you know, reference the imperialism of white settlers into Native lands back then. Like that's something you have to be very delicate about and know how you're approaching it and 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 i know that in in preparation for this episode when we were talking in our um in our twitter dms um you know one thing that i mentioned that i i I thought did a really great job of also representing religion in uh, what could be a controversial way, and I know was a controversial way that walked a lot of lines, that towed a lot of lines, but still managed to create what I think was a really incredible product, are the Assassin's Creed series of games. And and it's it's beautiful to me what um, what airs at the beginning of every single Assassin's Creed, Uh, game it's this little blurb this is this this disclaimer that says uh and it's changed a couple times but the original one this game is inspired by historical events and characters this work of fiction was designed developed and produced by a multicultural team of various religious faiths and beliefs and eventually it was changed to also add sexual orientations and gender identities which is also a great addition but to me that's that's important Because it wasn't a couple of white guys doing this. It wasn't just a couple of, you know, Muslim guys. It wasn't just a couple of black guys. It wasn't just a couple of women. It was a huge team that sat down and said, we all bring different perspectives to this table, and we want to be respectful of each other's perspectives and the perspectives that we represent, that we are coming into this room and representing. And... How do we make this game and this world incredible and compelling while still respecting everybody else's cultures? How do we bring these references in while still not slapping anybody in the face? That's our show. You can find the podcast at Goblin Lore Pod on Twitter or you can email any questions, comments, or concerns to us at goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. We've also now launched our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash goblinlorepod. Our $1 tier is open and gets you access to our private Discord server, where you can talk about all things lore and all things life. This episode was produced and edited by Joe Redman, who you can find on Twitter at Findhorn. That's F-Y-N-D Horn. This episode was hosted by Alex Newman, who you can find on Twitter at Alexander New M. Hobbs Q can be found on Twitter at Hobbs Q. Goblin Lore is a member of the Geek Therapy Network. Geek Therapy is a network of like-minded individuals who seek to use our hobbies and our love of games to understand our minds and the cultures that we live in. To learn more about Geek Therapy, check them out at geektherapy.com or at geektherapy on Twitter. Thank you all for listening, and remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers.